Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigns as Tory leader. He has stepped down amid a nonstop wave of officials in his cabinet resigning. What does this signal for UK politics and is this a larger signal for EU politics as well. For insight, let's turn to our first guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas, Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism, Dr. Gerald Horn. As always, Gerald, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So Bojo announced his resignation as leader of the UK's Conservative Party today. Uh, He leaves amid several high-profile scandals and following a wave of resignations of senior cabinet members. Talk about the pressure that's put on him from these scandals as well as the pressure that's being put on him based upon the economic realities, the impact of sanctions and inflation and other elements that are happening in the country as a result of the proxy war in Ukraine? Well, the economic pressures are quite formidable. And part of it has to do with the ham-fisted policies of Mr. Barge Johnson. If you look at the National Health Service, which in many ways is the pride and joy of Great Britain, uh, that is to say, government-subsidized health care, which probably doesn't even translate in the United States unless you understand something like Medicare, for example. Well, NHS is, is a kind of mess right now, which is a real blow to the Tories, Mr. Johnson's party. Uh, what I mean is it takes months to line up an operation because Mr. Johnson spearheaded Brexit it has become difficult to find nurses and other kinds of healthcare workers. And recall that the emblem of Great Britain, that is to say the National Health Service, was ratified when at the London Olympics uh, there was extraordinarily a considerable focus as a matter of pride and joy on the National Healthcare Service. So certainly that did not help Mr. Johnson's ability to maintain his tenure. And then there are questions of inflation, largely driven, I'm afraid to say, by Mr. Johnson's hawkishness with regard to Ukraine. He was in and out of Kiev so much, I dare say, that he probably was trying to rent an apartment there. And what's remarkable about that is that that in itself represents another wider point which is that Mr. Johnson was the symbol of Brexit, the epical June 2016 British exit from the European Union. And since Brexit, of which Mr. Johnson pushed so assiduously, Britain has had difficulty finding a role. There has been a lot of talk about Britain trying to re-enter the European Union, but I'm not even sure if the European Union would accept them. 
if they were so bold as to make an application. Brexit also meant that that London, Great Britain, was more susceptible to the whims of the United States of America. But a problem there, which Mr. Johnson was trying to address, is that it's very difficult to be an ally of this hawkish United States of America. You inevitably get plunged into conflict after conflict, and that's what Mr. Johnson was trying to do by being so hawkish on Brexit. Then you have these preening and posturing Irish-American politicians like Joseph R. Biden, who object to any tampering by London of the Good Friday Peace Accord uh, with regard to Northern Ireland. Recall that Northern Ireland is a constituent element of uh, Great Britain. And because of that, it has been difficult to effectuate some sort of alliance with the United States of America. It's been difficult for Britain to have better relations with China, although it was well postured to do so. Uh, That is to say, uh, China and Chinese interests would be uh, quite willing to invest in Great Britain. But then again, you have Britain being hawkish on the question of Hong Kong, the former British colony, which was reverted to Chinese rule in 1997. And then that led to another issue, because in order to embarrass China, Britain flung open wide the door to Hong Kongers moving into Great Britain. But that ran smack dab into the xenophobic elements in British culture, which has objected not only to the proverbial Polish plumber, but perhaps even more so because they're more readily identifiable to all of these Chinese who were arriving from Hong Kong uh, into London. And then there's the Commonwealth, the former British Commonwealth. Uh, It's difficult for Britain to dominate the Commonwealth. And recall, they just had their uh, meeting in Rwanda just uh, days ago, because it seems that India is the natural leader of the Commonwealth, not Great Britain. And as you know, at the highest levels of New Delhi, there's still resentment towards London because of the hundreds of years of British colonialism uh, in that uh, continental-sized nation of 1.3 billion. And London has compromised its policies even more by reviving its age-old hostility to Russia. Now, this is nothing new. Uh, It was a constituent element of the Cold War. If you go back to the 19th century, uh, visit for a moment the so-called Crimea War of the 1850s, uh, where London seemingly violated its own principles by ganging up on a so-called fellow Christian nation, speaking of Russia, in alliance with uh, the Islamists in Istanbul, uh, that is to say the Ottoman Empire. And That has been quite a stumbling block because, as noted, it led to this aforementioned hawkishness with regard to Ukraine, which in turn has fueled inflation, uh, which has eroded the possibility for Mr. Johnson hanging on to power. In some ways, Britain, as symbolized by Mr. Johnson, is still encountering the problem it faced post-1945, when, as the saying went, It was in the process of losing an empire, but had yet to find a role. 
And that remains the case. That is to say, as the litany I just uh, clicked off with regard to having troubled relations with India, the European Union, the United States, China, Russia, uh, Britain in some ways is reverting to its status before Protestantism uh, uh, descended in London in the 1530s. That is to say, a kind of minor monarchy on the fringes of Europe that's headed towards irrelevancy. Let me uh, ask you this. When you look at recent politics in Europe, Viktor Orban, a guy who is, you know, he's a right winger. He's opposed to the neocon venture in Ukraine and he's opposed to the sanctions. He won in a blowout. You look at what happened with Macron. If I'm Mario Draghi, if I'm Olaf Scholz, if I'm the rest of these people that have been all out with this neocon venture in Ukraine and I look at what happened to Bojo, I'm looking over my shoulder. Put this, Dr. Uh, uh, Horn, in the context of, you know, Europe and how these the other leaders have to look at this. Well, we're going to have to wait and see because presumably the Tories will hang on to power. It's unclear when the next election will take place. Part of the problem in Britain now, and you see it reflected in the United States of America, is that the opposition Labour Party there's not that much daylight between the labor rights and the Tories with regard to Ukraine policy. So it's unclear what the fallout will be electorally and then what the consequences will eventuate in Great Britain itself. But certainly I think that the United States should study the British example carefully because the United States as the self-proclaimed inheritor of the baton passed from the British Empire to Washington post-1945, is now in a process of decline. Uh, soon it will be facing some of the same questions that London has been facing for decades. That is to say, what will its role be uh, as the empire uh, sinks into irrelevancy? And I think I would be remiss if I failed to point out all of the wreckage and damage left by the British Empire. You need only look at historic Palestine. That, in some ways, is a product of misrule and misfeasance in London. If you look at Hong Kong, for example, already noted. If you look at apartheid South Africa, recall that London was the ostensible power there for decades, ever since the Dutch were pushed out at the beginning of the 19th century. And obviously, if you look at India and the historic conflict with Pakistan, that's a product of the rather erratic evacuation of the British Empire from South Asia post-1945. And I think there's a message, too, to our friends in the Caribbean who are pushing London for reparations. And I dare say that I think they'll take advantage of the opportunity. London is on the defensive now. And I think that Jamaica and Barbados and the others clamoring for reparations should kick London while it's down. Uh, that is to say, to gang up on London in conjunction with uh, many of these aforementioned antagonists, uh, speaking of uh, China and Russia in the first instance, and drive a hard bargain with regard to reparations, and certainly uh, black Americans, uh, who I'm afraid to say are oftentimes missing in action when it comes to uh, international questions, 
should not fail to seize this opportunity and tag along with Jamaica and Barbados because demanding successful reparations uh, from London will obviously have knock-on effects with regard to demanding successfully reparations from the United States of America. So this Bojo ouster uh, is seemingly a minor question, but it opens up enormous vistas for the legions of opponents developed over the decades and centuries by the British Empire and British imperialism. In fact, thank you, because that's my next question. Does the resignation of Boris Johnson, does it signal simply a problem with Boris Johnson? Or does this open the door for the counter to the Tories to take control of policy in Britain? Well, the counter to the Tories is noted on the labor rights under Sir Kara Stormer. And uh, I'm not optimistic about uh, a prime ministership of uh, Sir Kerr, as he might be called in London, Mm -hmm. because uh, he he got into office basically by stomping on the progressive legacy of his predecessor, speaking of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Notice that in Boris's resignation statement, he was explicit in castigating the parliamentary Tory party. And what he was doing was drawing a distinction with regard to the grassroots and membership where he thought that he still had support. Likewise, with regard to Sir Kerr, he has support from the parliamentary Labor Party, but the grassroots, the rank and file, are still in thrall, thankfully, uh, to Jeremy Corbyn. So that's going to open up a battle royal, it seems to me. Uh, when and if the next election takes place. And right now it's unclear. And it also raises questions as to who will be uh, the next Tory prime minister. And that, too, is unclear. But rest assured uh, that the restless uh, in Westminster and in London uh, have the knives out. And uh, hopefully that should not be taken literally. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. You are always so gracious when we call, and we truly, truly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Countercurrents has a piece entitled, U.S.-led holy war to conquer Russia and China declared by Pompeo. On June 24th, at the think tank, the Hudson Institute, U.S. President Trump's CIA chief and Secretary of State Pompeo delivered a 5,000-plus word speech suggesting that America has an essentially God-assigned mission to control the world so as to preserve freedom and democracy for everybody 
and that victory against Russia and China is therefore obligatory for the U.S. and its allies, not only to serve God, but also to serve God's people, because central to the economic well-being of American families is a U.S. that leads. It leads all across the world, both in military and in economic power. And so, according to Pompeo, we must act in concert with our allies to affect strategic clarity unmistakable to both Putin and Xi Jinping. Whew. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No, As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So whether you call it manifest destiny, whether you call it American internationalism, Pax Americana, K.J., this is insanity. You know, um, there's always been um, a tinge of that in, you know, in in Mike Pompeo. And I just want to remind our listeners that he comes from the Tea Party wing uh, of the uh, Republican Party. And he's also a millenarian Christian that he believes in the apocalypse. And so it, this kind of language is not surprising. Uh, but what is disturbing is that it reflects the mainstream discourse within the Biden administration itself. These statements are, by and large, especially the attacks on China, are largely interchangeable. And I think it speaks to the amount of distance that we have gotten between reality and these projections and fantasies uh, about an imagined enemy. You know, I've been thinking this for a while because when I hear the Biden administration, when I hear the last several years, probably the last two decades, the kind of language that I've heard out of the U.S. military establishment and the U.S. establishment, I think of the Crusades. These people literally sound like they're on some moral, religious crusade to rid the world of evil. And Mike Pompeo doesn't, you know, he doesn't mince his words. He pretty much comes out and says, we're here to do God's work. That is the most frightening thing about these people. And as you said, and when that's said, the mainstream politicians should stand up and say, oh, my God. Oh, whoa. Hey, where are you going there, buddy? You're getting out of hand here. But instead, they're all quiet. Your thoughts? You know, you know, since people are thinking of this in religious terms, um, you know, I think it's important for us to refer to a religious authority himself, the, the Pope. And he has said that, you know, he has cautioned uh, the world about thinking of things in a, you know, in a, in a kind of a black and white uh, mindset, you know, that they're good guys and bad guys, that he says that there are no metaphysical good guys and bad guys, and that, you know, this is a very foolish thing to do. So I think first, you know, we should refer back to, you know, uh, religious authorities but you're absolutely correct. You know, this is the neocon formulation of the world. As I've pointed out many times on this show before, the neocons are detached from reality. They're actually a substantive uh, shift from the realists like Kissinger, like Brzezinski and others, who were still, despite their uh, global, you know, hegemonic agendas, were still grounded in reality. The neocons believe that they can force reality through, uh, through, through an act of will. 
and and that is really what is extraordinarily dangerous for us. Here's one of the things that I think is the most immoral part of this war in Ukraine, and it shows how they look and how what the people of Taiwan should be thinking. He says, by assisting Ukraine, America bolsters our own security without the involvement in combat of our men and women. We're not going to send America's military into this war. Our president has made that clear. The real immoral thing, if you really think about it, is this, that the U.S. says we're going to take these people in Ukraine and we're just going to chew them up. They are cannon fodder. We're not going to get our hands dirty, per se. We're not going to get our uniforms bloody. But we are going to throw these people in a grinder like mulch until we run out of them and then we'll find some more people to throw into a grinder. If I were the people of Taiwan, I'd be looking at Ukraine and saying, hey, I really don't want to end up like that. I know how this ends. It's a sad state of affairs that these people in Taiwan can't figure out how they're going to end. As, as I say, and I'll say this in honor of James Kahn, who just passed yesterday, every time I watch The Godfather and James Kahn heads to the causeway, I yell at the TV screen, Sonny, don't go, Sonny, don't go, but he always gets shot up on the causeway. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The people of Taiwan. Uh, but at any rate, your thought on all of this? Yes. I mean, essentially, they're on a conveyor belt to um, a, a wood chipper, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is I mean, this is the sausage machine working. And uh, the, the, the fact that the United States will not put its military where its mouth is, uh, you know, tells us everything we need to know. But you're absolutely correct. They shouldn't go there. They don't want to go there. And I think there's a pretty good uh, consensus in Taiwan itself that it does not want uh, to go there. It wants to maintain the status quo. It does not want to wage a war with China. Neither does China want to wage a war with Taiwan province. And so the majority of people are sane, but it is this quizzling leadership of the DPP in alliance with the neocons which is crossing red lines and trying to create a trigger for war. This is probably because uh, when the next election cycle comes up, which will happen in a few years, they will be kicked out of office and things will go back to the way they were, which is the status quo, which had led to decades of peace and decades of development. Kino KJ, in your earlier answer, you mentioned black and white in the context of binary thinking. But I think there's a phenotypical analysis here. As Pompeo talks about, this must be unmistakable to both Putin and Xi Jinping. And some people listening would say, well, wait a minute, Wilmer. Uh, Putin is Russian and Russians are white. Well, that gets into an analysis of what is whiteness and what does the ruling class consider to be white. Your thoughts on that assessment? You know, the Russians have always uh, had this kind of hybrid designation. I think the most important one to point out is that George Kennan, who was the architect of the containment of the USSR, was once asked why the United States could not coexist, could not cooperate, could not uh, work in mutual harmony with uh, the USSR. And he threw out a lot of verbiage, history, culture, etc. And then he finally settled on the statement, you know what, the Russians are an Asiatic race. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely mm-hmm. uh, a typical analysis going on. Here's something that I think is of great consequence that I pulled out of the speech. And it is my steadfast view that our government should immediately 
confer diplomatic recognition to Taiwan, for it is a free and sovereign country. Our recognition of Taiwan should not hinge on what will occur, which we already know they will get the Ukraine treatment, if not worse. And he says, Taiwan's already an independent country. We should reflect that fact. The issue I have is this. I have very little doubt that that wasn't vetted and approved by the likes of a Tony Blinken State Department. Your thoughts? Yes. Well, you know, it's it's well, uh, Pompeo has always subscribed to this, along with many other fatuous and imaginary beliefs. But uh, the simple fact is that if you believe in state sovereignty and you use that as a battering ram against Russia, uh, regarding the Ukraine, then you cannot, you cannot interfere in Taiwan. Taiwan is, is recognized by the United Nations and most of the planet as a province of China, including the United States. The Taiwanese themselves do not recognize themselves as an independent country. Their constitution states that they are China. Uh, their, their museum, the, mu- the National Museum contains what, you know, millions of artifacts that come from uh, the Forbidden Palace. So the, the, the very fact of this is an absurdity. And it is a kind of a myth that the DPP uh, and the United States is trying to create in order to set up China for uh, global uh, approbation uh, when, when uh, and if it uh, comes down to uh, a kinetic war. That is to say, they're going to say Taiwan is already independent and therefore China invaded an independent state. That's absolutely false. Uh, Taiwan is a province of China. It is recognized as a province of China and Taiwan itself claims that it is China. So absolute mendacity, absurdity, but not surprising from the individual who says that he uh, lied, cheated, and stole. And for people to, to have an example of this, it would be uh, analogous to China deciding that they're going to go ahead and, and free Puerto Rico. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. We have about a minute and a half left. Global Times says that the uh, European Parliament hijacks EU members with a report hyping enhanced economic ties with secessionist Taiwan authorities. KJ. Yes. No, this is a more of the salami slicing that's going on. If you remember, Lithuania, you know, tried to open relations with, uh, with the Taiwan province. And the EU is following the U.S. bidding. It's trying to set up this kind of Western Atlantic consensus that Taiwan is already a sovereign state. It's not. It's, it's not recognized by the United Nations. It's not recognized by any U.N. body as such. It is not recognized by most of the countries on this planet, except for, uh, except for uh, a, a few dozen, except for a dozen very small and insignificant ones for the most part. And so this is more of the salami slicing, more of the information warfare, more of the setup for delegitimation against China. I think China will just wait this out. But uh, clearly, uh, the EU and the G7 are doing the U.S. bidding, uh, towing the, the U.S. line on this war. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. You're welcome. Always a pleasure.
Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigns as Tory leader. He stepped down amid a nonstop wave of officials from his cabinet resigning. What does this signal for U.K. politics? And as well, is this a signal of a bigger problem across Europe? For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's the host of The Duran. You can find it at Duran.com. Alexander Mercurius. Alexander, welcome back, man. It's great to hear your voice. And it's wonderful to be with you again. So Boris Johnson announced his resignation as the leader of the UK's Conservative Party earlier today. Uh, There are a number of high-profile scandals following the wave of resignations of senior cabinet members. To my initial question, what does this signal for the politics in Britain, and is this a signal of bigger problems in Germany, in France, in other countries in Europe? Right, what it signals about British politics is that British politics is in crisis. Because love him or hate him, and my inclination is very much to the second, I should say, but Boris Johnson was the dominant figure in British politics over the last five, six years. I mean, he's been the big beast in the political jungle since about 2016, ever since it also became clear, especially, that Jeremy Corbyn was not going to be, become prime minister and that the political class was going to, 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 to block him off. Now Johnson has fallen and there is no one clear to take his place. The Conservative Party is completely at sea. They, they couldn't bear Johnson anymore. They are extremely worried about the economic crisis that we now have in Britain. And crisis, by the way, is absolutely the correct word. They sense the enormous disconnection between themselves and the electorate, the people out there in the country. So they remove Johnson because he's the symbol of this disconnect the symbol of this crisis, but they have no idea what to put in his place, and they have no idea what plan to follow as an alternative to his. So we are in a very profound political crisis in Britain, the worst I have ever known in my lifetime, and my political memory in Britain reaches all the way back to the 60s. So I've never known it like this. And it's a crisis of the Conservative Party, but it's a crisis of the entire political elite. The Labour Party itself is not at the moment a a coherent and real alternative. And the basic reason is because, of course, they, on the one hand, all want to preserve the status quo, the Thatcherite status quo, deeply unpopular and discredited though it is. And they also want to continue with the policies that Johnson himself was following. First and foremost, 
this utterly calamitous war of economic attrition they've been waging against Russia, the effects of which they completely miscalculated and which have backfired horribly, but which they don't know how to stop. You know, Alexander, the question I think is, why? Why is he gone? What we hear on the surface is there's scandals and there was party gate and this gate and groping gates and all these kind of things going on. But I can't help but tie it all back to Ukraine in that, yes, there was inflation, etc. But the blowback from the sanctions has created a massive growing crisis. And the people intuitively know that they're only at the beginning of the crisis and they suspect it's going to get much worse. Here's my fear that the real crisis, when people say, OK, doggone it, we're done with this guy. And they and somebody else new comes in and then they realize that's not going to work. What happens when the people hit a brick wall and they think, "Uh uh-oh, there's no way out. We can't put a new person in here. This system is broken. Here's the adage, Alexander, that I would throw into that. And that would be, to Garland's point, with all of the crises that were mentioned, that once the uh, Ukraine blowback hit, it was almost Nero fiddled, even though he didn't have a fiddle. He had a lute. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. This is exactly right. You're both absolutely correct. First of all, let's talk about the scandals. I mean, there have been lots of scandals under Johnson. There are lots of scandals under many prime ministers. Tony Blair had the cash for honours. John Major before him. He had all kinds of scandals, all sexual scandals, business scandals. He himself was involved in a scandal, though that was concealed. Margaret Thatcher had the, uh, the Westland affair, which is a major scandal in its day. Now, Scandals like that only damage a prime minister who is already in severe political trouble. Johnson was in severe political trouble because of the pervasive sense of economic crisis. Now, they don't want to say that. They don't want to talk about Ukraine. They don't want to talk about the blowback from the economic war that they've started because of Ukraine. Because if they did that, if they went to the British people and said, well, the reason we are removing this prime minister is because of an economic crisis, which has been created because of Ukraine, then, of course, the people will come back and say, well, okay, then let's get rid of the prime minister and end this economic war over Ukraine. Let's lift the sanctions and change the policy and pursue peace in Ukraine instead of war. The entire political class will not do that. They will not do that, and they will persist with this policy, driving Britain into an ever deeper impasse. And two points. Firstly, the Nero simile is exactly right, because, of course, Nero, he has the fire, and, of course, he just fiddles away. He can't really bring himself to uh, change anything. He, he, He has no real policy. He's, in fact, in a, kind of, in a kind of way, both in denial about the catastrophe that's uh, you know, uh, uh, engulfing him, but he's also indifferent, in a sense, to the catastrophe that is engulfing him, because he has his own agenda, which is completely different to that of the people he's governing. And that's the British political class now at this present time. And the second point, which goes back to your first question, are we going to see this 
happen across Europe. Absolutely. Probably, probably Germany is next, where the economic crisis is now deepening at extraordinary speed. Um, the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, I, I was listening to a speech he was giving, which was a speech of a leader addressing a nation which is also being engulfed by crisis. And, of course, we've seen the elections in France. We've seen the protests in Bulgaria. We get the sense of growing unease in Italy. In other words, it's building everywhere, right across Europe, in Britain too, of course. But, of course, no one in power wants to change. They want to continue. They want to go full speed ahead, like the captain of the Titanic, sailing straight for the iceberg. You know, in listening to the description and explanation that you just gave, I, I thought you were talking about Joe Biden. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, in some ways, can I just say, I mean, you know, we are, we in Europe are all complicit in all of this. I mean, we've all participated in it. We've all enthusiastically joined in it. But of course, it's, it's Biden. It's the Biden administration which ultimately has been the prime driver of this policy. They've created the crisis in Ukraine. They're not in any way willing or able to change course. And um, as uh, Garland actually said to me in an email, this is an incredibly dangerous administration. They're now looking to start something with Taiwan as well. I I'm convinced of it. They're, they 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 don't know where to stop. Now, the U.S., is in a bad way, but Europe is in a catastrophic place, and Britain is in a worse position still. And the weak point, the point where things are going to break, is going to be in, in Britain and in Europe first. You know, Alexander, I do think, you know, the, the Germans and some of the people are acting shocked that Russia is, let's just say, you know, having some technical issues with uh, energy and dialing some of it back. And I've used the cauldron metaphor in the same way that you, they use cauldrons in the military. They surround people militarily and turn up the heat. I kind of have a feeling that the 60 percent less gas and the Kazakh oil pipeline shutting down is a kind of a cauldron. They're kind of turning up the heat in Europe because they know time is on their side that the people of Europe are not going to continue to support this thing as they, you know, they run out of bread and, 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 and food. Absolutely. And of course, this is the, this is the great uh, uh, irony and in fact, absurdity of this thing, because European leaders in response to all of this jump up and down. They talk about Russian energy blackmail. <laughs> they talk about, you know, this outrageous, outrageous, shocking that the Russians would do all of this. So the idea is, you know, you can sanction everybody around the world, however much you like. You can sanction the Russians. You can sanction the Iranians. You can sanction the Iraqis. But, you know, horror upon horror. You know, how dare these people do anything in return? You know, hurt us, hurt us back. And again, it's this staggering sense of entitlement that the Western political class has, which baffles me that they didn't imagine that the Russians would dare do this back at them. And now, of course, that it's happening, they don't really know how to res respond. But you're absolutely right. The Russians are very, very 
carefully, prudently. They switch off a tap here. <laughs> they turn down a dial there. They let, as you say, the temperature slowly rise. And I've just seen an opinion poll coming out of Germany, which says that 47% of Germans now say that Ukraine must make peace, even if that means giving up territory, against only 41% of Germans who say that Ukraine should go on uh, with the war and not uh, seek peace. Now, that is a dramatic change from the polling uh, just a few months ago, when 70, 80 percent were talking in Germany, were talking about supporting Ukraine, however, how, whatever it took. So you can see that this this policy of, you know, turning up the heat little by little by little by little is actually having exactly the effect it's intended to do. Understanding that he could overplay his hand, but what we've seen to date tells me he won't, does this make President Putin a kingmaker in a number of countries in Europe? He, by turning the dial here and turning the dial down there, providing heat here, not allowing heat there, can impact the politics of France, can impact the politics of Germany very, very directly. Absolutely, of course he can, but of course you're absolutely right. He's going to do it in a very careful way so as not to appear to overplay his hand, so as not to appear to be the, the overlord of Europe, which might provoke not just a reaction in Europe, mm -hmm. but a reaction around the world. So to, he's saying, well, I'm, I'm not actually doing this. It's not, nothing to do with me. It's because we have this piece of machinery which the Germans sent to Canada for repair and which the Canadians are not returning. I mean, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. We, of course, always comply with our contracts. <laughs> and, you know, he, he's, he's, I think, playing this with very great skill. And can I just say, I mean, so are the Russians in general. I mean, they're doing this in a very, very careful, structured methodical, mm -hmm. steady way. They're doing the same in Ukraine, in the battlefields. They're doing the same in the economic crisis. And, of course, behind the Russians are the Chinese, and the Chinese are doing the same. And, of course, there's been all the suggestions. There were all those suggestions at the start of the war that China and Russia were going to go in opposite directions. And I was reading, uh, uh, you know, the Chinese media, how the Chinese are now going to invest in the Russian car industry, how, ch uh, you know, they're going to start making smartphones in Russia, that the Chinese and the Russians are going to be making microelectronics together, chips and all that sort of thing. And um, the Chinese... Um, listen to all these threats about secondary sanctions and you get the increasing impression that they don't really care because they sense that anyway mm -hmm. the stakes are too high for them and that the US is going to come after them eventually anyway and besides they're prepared for it too so they're also dialing the, you know, turning up the dial ever so subtly ever so gently as well Alexander Mercurius, again, really great to hear your voice and that brilliant analysis. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. And I'm delighted to be back again. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Lee, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Casualties from the war in Ukraine include millions of the world's poor. Financial aftershocks from the war in Ukraine are hitting dozens of countries that are still reeling from the pandemic, fueling a global cost-of-living crisis that has driven 71 million people into poverty just since March. This is according to the UN Development Program's report released yesterday. Uh, You know, President Biden says all the time that he respects nations' independence and their sovereignty. I guess he does while his sanctions regime and proxy war drives people to the poorhouse. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tahid. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So food and fuel price spikes resulting from the Ukraine conflict have strained household and government budgets across the developing world. This is according to Achim Steiner, administrator of the U.N. agency. Especially hard hit have been the Western Balkans, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Central Asia. High prices for oil and wheat are hammering countries that borrowed heavily last year to fund pandemic relief, leaving little public money for measures that would take the sting out of rising costs. Dr. Limwatahid, this is an economic catastrophe. Uh, it's an economic catastrophe, but also, of course, it's a human catastrophe as, as persons in those countries um, uh, uh, go into poverty, which means uh, just at the, at the United Nations level, Going into poverty is not just, you know, being able to miss your your afternoon tea. It's it's not being able to buy enough food to keep your family alive. And so we have, of course, the inflation that uh, was with us uh, during the pandemic, but also being exacerbated by 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 these sanctions. And uh, you have you have persons in poor countries who are uh, now living at starvation level, which means, of course, there will be starvation and famine. And, and, and you know, these, these, these types of things, we've, we've talked about inflation uh, being detrimental to the wealthy because, uh, or to, to lenders, to banks, and so forth. But there's another side of that also is that, obviously, inflation is detrimental to the poor. And, 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 that's often missed because the, the narrative is always or almost always about what something does to the wealthy since since they control the uh, the mainstream media but but this story about about uh, 71 million people going into poverty meaning not unable to buy food clothing and shelter well essentially food for themselves is a story that uh, that we often missed you know, I've seen, and you can go online on Twitter, various places, and find a number of stories now about Sri Lanka having collapsed. I'm reading that angry crowds are now chasing and killing wealthy people. Over 200 dead, state of anarchy. They don't have, a, you know, when you look at this, it seems to me, here's, here's my point. The wealthy in a lot of these countries and the elite ruling class are looking at it like, well, we are, um, you know, we're kind of exempt from this. The people are going to suffer, but we'll be fine. And it seems to me, in reading this, they ain't going to be fine. And this could be a what we're looking at happening in Sri Lanka now could portend what could happen in the UK, in Germany, based on some of the things that we're seeing. What are your thoughts? In the United States. Well, I don't want to say that, but yes, there too. 
Yeah, I, 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 certainly, certainly there is um, uh, a widespread uh, disappointment, I'll, I'll be generous, uh, with the Biden administration in the U.S. Uh, you know, uh, Donald Trump received almost 50 percent of the, of the vote. Uh, that 50% of the population is is not in favor of what Joe Biden is doing. Those are Republicans, uh, or the consequences of what Joe Biden is doing in terms of the sanctions and so forth. But many many Democrats are uh, are also being affected and, and negatively by the inflation that that Biden is trying to put on Putin. But people aren't believing that. And so yes, we we we, we will have and and will continue to have widespread uh, civil unrest as things get worse in this country. Europe is, in fact, going to be worse uh, in, in terms of the effect of, of these sanctions, particularly in energy on uh, Russian sanctions. Uh, but, but the developing countries are, are uh, very much more vulnerable to this type of social collapse. Um, you know, this story talks about the, 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 the debt that these countries have because they borrowed money uh, for pandemic relief during, uh, from the World Bank. Uh, what usually happens is that when these countries cannot pay this debt, then the, 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 the loaners, uh, the lenders of the money, uh, usually resort to what we would call asset sell-offs. That is, they want these countries to, to sell off uh, their, their whatever assets they have, most of which would be agricultural land or other kinds of things, so that Western nations, Western buyers, become the owners of land in these, in these poor countries. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm cynical enough to believe that that's a desired outcome by um, um, the wealthy in the West who are, will use this as an opportunity. Uh, this is a crisis. It will be used as an opportunity for Western um, uh, finance to get a greater hold on the on the assets for developing countries. Following along that line, there's been a lot of discussion about cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency crashing. New York Times has a piece, Crypto Crashed Wall Street One. Bitcoin prices have plunged along with other cryptocurrency startups have failed. And it says that Wall Street's biggest banks have barely taken a hit. I don't know how accurate that is, because from what I understand, some of these banks have joined into this as well. But if you could give us some insight into what's going on with cryptocurrency, and is that having a broader impact on the economic situation? Uh, you know, crypt cryptocurrency should have always been looked upon as a scam, as a Ponzi scheme. Uh, you know, someone invests in cryptocurrency, you're just investing in money. Now, unless that money is being used to produce something productive, there's no reason for the value of that to go up, except, um, you know, more people demand it. And so, and so what happens as, as, you know, we've had this crash is that the money that was originally paid into cryptocurrency accounts uh, it, it didn't disappear. It, it, those who cashed out early received that money the extra value that was supposed to be there because of increased demand, that was what, what we call fictitious capital. It really doesn't exist. It, it's not like buying a house where you, you know, money goes one way, house comes the other way, and if the person who received the money uh, loses, it goes bankrupt, well, the house is still there. Uh, this this, this is, uh, has been a scam. It's been a Ponzi scheme. 
And if banks have participated in this, uh, they, they, if they got out early, they were okay. Uh, Wall Street folks would, would, would generally be in that, in that, um, in that number. Uh, but, but, but ordinary people, if you will, who stayed around saw the original money that they invested, uh, quote, invested, disappear. There's a story out that, that African Americans, that the, the black community, in fact, were, were twice as likely to have invested in crypto than, than whites, uh, which means that uh, this has disproportionately hurt the black community in terms of wealth. Uh, another interesting article. Speaking of harebrained schemes, the U.S. and allies discussed trying to cap Russian oil at forty to sixty dollars per barrel. And when I, as soon as I looked at, at that, I thought, if the Russians suddenly can't sell their oil at a price that makes money, they'll just even if it's just for a month, they'll just say, "All right, we're taking our oil off the market for a month." They will create tremendous scarcity. A drive the price up. And B, people who are starving for oil will beg them to put it back on the market. This seems like, I mean, of all of the harebrained schemes, I think this is probably just about the worst so far. Your thoughts, Dr. Tawheed? Well, one of the things that's kind of puzzling about this that, uh, you, you know, what difference does the price of Russian oil make if you're not buying Russian oil? Uh, <laughs> the Europe and the, and the U.S. were supposedly sanctioning Russian oil. So, so Russian oil is, is the price of Russian oil doesn't make any difference if you're not buying Russian oil. So that is, of course, a, 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 a hint that uh, these uh, European countries are, in fact, still buying Russian oil. And one of the things that in terms of the developing story is that India it has increased its, its imports of oil, but also increased its exports of oil. That is, uh, Europe and, and, and uh, European uh, countries are buying or still buying Russian oil. They're buying it through India. India is getting it from Russia at a discount. And so the cap on Russian oil is actually a cap on oil that would be purchased from India that, that originally comes from Russia. And so it's not aimed at Russia. It's aimed at India or any other country that is buying and reselling oil uh, in order to keep oil prices down in Europe. So to keep oil prices down in Europe, they're going to, in fact, uh, 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 to create a cap on oil coming uh, indirectly to them from Russia. There, there's no there's no reason for India to participate in that either. Nor China. It's not as though Russia is at a real loss or is desperate to find buyers for its product. Mm-hmm. Well, if India and China cannot. Uh, you know, if they if they have to pay more. Uh, for Russian oil, then they can resell it with this price cap if it's uh, you know sixty dollars or so. Uh, then India, of course, stops selling that oil. Uh, but of course, that means that that the price of oil, the, the demand for it, the supply of oil decreases, and the and the and the price of oil wherever it comes from, Saudi Arabia, anywhere else, in Europe and in the U.S. begins to increase. So the inflation that will come as a result of this, this shutdown of supply is uh, just going to add uh, a, a additional uh, 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 problems to the current inflation. It's estimated that, that the price of oil, which is now um, at about $120 a barrel for, for the best, called rent crude, will go up to about $380 a barrel. That is a huge increase in energy costs that uh, may uh, will probably lead to the kind of civil unrest that we talked about earlier. Lee and Pocan file 
amendment to slash $100 billion from U.S. military budget. Quote, for far too long, this country has put profits ahead of people. Nowhere is that more apparent than in our Pentagon top-line budget, according to Congresswoman Barbara Lee. So Barbara Lee and Mark Pocan led a group of House Democrats in filing amendments that would slash current U.S. military spending by $100 billion in reverse recent efforts to add more money to Joe Biden's historically high budget. Your thoughts on this and how much of this is basically political posturing with Barbara Lee knowing this isn't going to get through anyway. Right. It's not going it's not going to go anywhere. Now, it, it does raise a raise a story mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the general public and the media that that may have some some reverberations in terms of money being um, um, allocated to uh, support uh, weapons manufacturers um, and, and, and so forth. There is a time for that discussion. This this amendment is not going to go anywhere. But but it does raise the issue, and it's not just Republicans who are uh, going to block this effort. Mm-hmm. There will be Democrats who will block this effort also, uh, maybe a significant number of them showing that, at least in terms of the military budget, Republicans and Democrats are on the same side, but they've always been on the same side. So this, this, this amendment won't go anywhere, but the issue that the military can simply uh, continue to raise its budget even more then it then is asked for is, is a story that needs to be discussed. Uh, it's good to see, uh, uh, you know, at least two Democrats uh, raising this issue, but but I think it's dead on arrival. In fact, it's really it's Barbara Lee doing what Barbara Lee does and does very well. Uh, unfortunately, uh, to your point, she doesn't have enough people behind her to really make any difference. It does raise the dialogue, which makes one wonder as as the economy continues to tank this particular story will become more significant we got 30 seconds yes it uh, it uh, unfortunately for democrats they they can't blame republicans for for Correct. the uh, moving money uh this this points um uh, more uh, you know this is progressive democrats if if you want to if, if there are any left uh, pointing a finger at that as corporate Democrats, this is an internal Democratic mm-hmm. Party fight, um, and um, it, it it pertain it 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 creates perhaps some um, some hope among progressives that there are still Democrats who will fight right. for them. Maybe maybe there's an attempt to get them out in the November election, um, but uh, but I think I think Democrats have a long way to go to be able to to uh, out uh, to win uh, their seats in the November election. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The Biden administration ramps up Iran sanctions as nuclear talks falter. The Treasury Department imposes a fresh sanctions regime on Gulf 
Earth-based network, which it claims helps facilitate trade of Iranian petroleum and petrochemicals. Sounds like the U.S. would call this negotiating pressure at the table. Most of us would probably call it sabotage. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, broadcaster, and analyst based in Beirut, Lebanon, but joins us in studio, Laith Marouf, man. Welcome, and thanks for coming in. Wow, I'm really uh, happy to be here for the first time. It's an amazing opportunity to see you both in person. Thank you. We really, really appreciate it. Came all the way just for this interview, then I'm going to get to the airport and head on right back to Beirut. The U.S. uh, yesterday imposed sanctions on a network of people and entities it accused of helping to deliver and sell Iranian petroleum and petrochemical products to East Asia as negotiations between Washington and Tehran over the JCPOA have hit a stalemate. This just seems to be another bump in the road in the inevitable attempt by the United States just to say, oh, we couldn't get this thing done, deal over. Yeah, and it's just a delay tactic uh, for the arrival of Biden to uh, the Zionist colony in uh, Saudi-occupied Arabia in the middle of this month. So we know that uh, this uh, visit by Biden will be setting the stage for what's going to happen next in the whole uh, Western Asia. So we know, for instance, that uh, you know Iran currently is selling at maximum. It's it's pumping all this oil and gas. It cannot pump more. All the customers are buying its product. The United States really cannot pile up more sanctions to change that reality. And uh, as we see with the uh, chaos in supplies of oil and gas in the world, everybody is looking for any supplier. So there, are, there's no, uh, you know, the the clients of the United States in the world are actually the ones that are buying uh, the Iranian uh, gas and oil because they have no other choice but to do so. So it's it. You look at it clearly. It is a um, an omen of what's going to happen next. We know that clearly there may be a military confrontation in Western Asia and all this delay tactic that the United States has uh, with the, about the GCPO, we'll return to it, is uh, just to prepare for this confrontation. You know, what's interesting, Laith, is that the in this quest for world hegemony, you know, this whole thing of pushing against the, now they're pushing against Russia and China, they've created an environment where the U.S. empire and its vassal states are taking it the hardest. They're the ones that need the fuel from Russia. So now the U.S. may, uh, leadership may dislike Iran or in Venezuela, but they need them. And the U.S., it seems to me, and its allies are really suffering and has undermined all of the sanctions. They can't sanction Venezuela and Iran like they used to, that this whole thing is turning inside out on the, the U.S. empire. Well, if you sanction the whole world, I mean, (laughs) how much meaning does the sanctions have? Because the rest of the world, as is happening right now, will trade together whether the United States sanctions them or not. Because there is no UN sanctions on Iran or Venezuela. There is only a United States sanctions. So, and this new world that is being birthed right now is a multipolar world and uh, people are fed up with, uh, you know, having to wait for European people to, um, you know, give them orders on, on how to live their life. It's it's over. It's done that uh, 600 years of uh, European domination of uh, humanity is over. 
In fact, the Iran's deputy foreign minister, Mehdi Safari, says our petrochemical industry and its products have long been under sanctions, but our sales have continued through various channels and, and shall continue to do so. So what he's saying is this is really all for naught, which reading that then makes me ask the question, how much of this is really just for political domestic consumption in the United States so that Biden can say he's doing something versus there actually being some impact or some leverage that is being is being applied here? Yeah, it's definitely, um, as you're saying, it's more for local consumption, specifically because the United States wants to uh, assure its citizens that it's still the strongest country in the world, that it can uh, control everybody else's uh, decisions, uh, and everybody has to listen to them. But as we see, if you look from the outside, if you're not you know, stuck in this bubble of the United States, inside of the United States, you'll see that nobody gives a damn anymore about what the opinions of uh, the, the United States are. And people in Africa, Asia, and Latin America are uh, dancing on the grave of uh, European empire, empire. You know they're they're ready to uh, you know set their own futures without decisions being uh, forced on them by the West. There's a, another interesting article here, but I want to throw something else at you. Syrian soldier killed in Israeli drone strike near Golan border. But put that together, because I know we've been reporting on it, and I know you have. The Russians have said to the Israelis, you know, made like pretty much demanded you to unconditionally cease your illegal attacks on Syria. And I think that's also a part of this kind of new order and multipolar order. Put that stuff together. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, like yesterday, President uh, Putin not only, you know, over the week condemned Israel for their multiple attacks on, on Syria and demanded their end, but also he just suspended the work of the Jewish agency in all of uh, Russia, which is a dramatic move. The Jewish agency is responsible for the, um, you know, migration of and settlement process of bringing in settlers, colonists from Russia or any other country. So to have the Jewish agency being shut down in Russia for the first time since uh, the end of the Soviet Union, that means that, uh, you know, it's, it's a drastic measure that uh, President Putin is telling the Zionists it's game over. They either, uh, you know, stop um, meddling with Russian interests in the region and in Ukraine or the relationship of uh, the amicable relationship that they still had with Russia will end. And and, and if we put that in, in context with the uh, drones that Hezbollah sent over uh, the gas field um, that, that that's on the disputed uh, territorial waters between Palestine and Lebanon, over the last week, we can see that there is a clear, um, you know, advancement uh, towards confrontation in the region. And, and you know, I have a, a question in my mind. I'm not sure if the confrontation will start before the arrival of Biden, and that will be definitely in the in the interest of the axis of resistance. But if it's uh, after, it means that all this, all the tools of the United States have been arranged if, uh, if, if nothing happens before Biden uh, arrives. How much of the arrangement within the countries in the Middle East between Saudi Arabia and Oman and the rest of them and Israel, how much of that is uh, for show 
versus how much of that will really result in a change in the dynamic on the ground. And, and you are talking about when the resistance manifests itself makes me wonder if the resistance were to start before Biden got there, would that be a signal to Mohammed bin Salman or or the president or the, the emir of Qatar or whatever that, you know what, this is a fight we really don't want in terms of their domestic circumstance versus all of that be damned, we're going to go ahead with this because in the long run, it works to our benefit. If a confrontation starts between, say, let's say Hezbollah and uh, the Zionist colony or Syria and the Zionist colony over the before the arrival of Biden, I don't think he'll make the trip. Of course not. Because Israel will be on fire, you know, <laughs> right. and uh, so and and in terms of the Gulf uh, vessel states, there, I mean, these are uh, you know not real states. They they are uh, have no control over their foreign policy. They have no control over their financial policies either. So what we see right now with, for instance, the Saudis is they are um, and and the Emiratis and so forth. They are worried that their master. NDC is collapsing and cannot, uh, you know, retain, re- continue to, to offer them protection. And you can see them, they're trying to outreach to the Russians and the Chinese to maybe right. move to a new master because they don't know how nothing but to be slaves, these, these uh, monarchs in the Gulf. But this is a very dangerous game for them because if their master in D.C. sees that they're uh, causing them, you know, trouble, maybe that will be the end of them. In any case, if the United States exits Western Asia, all these monarchies will end in the Gulf. And it seems to me that uh, it's exactly what you're saying, that that you've got the power players now in the Gulf looking at – here's two things. What you said, they're looking at, you know, kind of who's going to (laughs) win. I think these guys are going to win. But I also think they're looking at Ukraine and saying, wait a minute, the U.S. says we got your back. And then they set you up and all this, and they're like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, UAA, go to war with Iran. And when Iran turns you into rubble, they ain't coming to help. And these, I think the other part of it, they're looking at Ukraine and countries that were allied with the U.S. are starting to realize, wait a minute, they will set you up. They will say they're going to go to war for you. They will put you out against some superpower and get you flattened. And they'll just walk away and say, yeah, well, we'll, we will avenge your death, but we ain't going to help. George Bush and the Kurds. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Or, or you know, it's the U.S. and Iraq with the war against Iran. I mean, the, the right. Iraq lost so much. Do you think do you think they're seeing that from Ukraine? I mean, anybody with, you know, one brain cell <laughs> <laughs> must be looking and seeing, oh, my God, they, they said Ukrainians are white. You know, they're supposed to have the privilege of whiteness, uh, but they're being left to to uh, be slaughtered. And that's basically, I'm sure these Gulf monarchs are worried for their future. They know that uh, their own population is ready to uh, cannibalize them if they can, uh, you know. And uh, so the protection of the United States and looking at how the equipment, the military equipment of the United States, play, you know, is is failing not only in Ukraine, but it failed in the Zionist colony. It failed in the Saudi war against uh, Yemen. And so even from the sense of military technology, it's the end of uh, Western domination. 
You mentioned Yemen. Uh, U.S. warns talks on Yemen truce in trouble. The U.S. warned uh, Tuesday that talks on Yemen's two-month truce were in trouble as it pushed for an extension to help support millions at risk. How is this shaking out and why? First of all, is this a valid report? And why is it now starting to fall apart if, in fact, it is? Well, uh, the uh, Eid, uh, the the celebration that comes at the end of uh, the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, is this weekend. Uh, The uh, government of Sana'a and Ansarullah have demanded that the main highways connecting uh, parts of uh, Yemen, specifically around the uh, highway knot in Taiz, to be opened so Yemenis can celebrate uh, the Eid with their families across the country. And the Saudis are refusing. This was supposed to be part of the uh, ceasefire deal that Taiz city is demilitarized and becomes a neutral zone where, you know, people from all parts of Yemen can travel through it and has not happened. So the Yemeni resistance is um, saying that if this is not, these roads are not open by the Eid this weekend, then they're they're going to back uh, you know, start uh, the fight again. Um, and so this definitely will harm the ability of Biden to do to visit the Saudis. So imagine if we're back at war. You see, there's multiple fronts, as we just mentioned, the, the front with Syria, Lebanon, and the Zionist colony, and this front with the Saudis and Yemen. If this front is also open before, prior to the arrival of Biden, there, Biden will not come because these missiles were falling on Riyadh and Jeddah and Dammam, the main cities in the Saudi, blowing up the, the uh, the infrastructure of oil and gas. So, uh, let me add something to that. And one of the reasons I believe this truce came is because they were increasing their technology and they were really starting to put the hurt on the Saudi oil infrastructure. The le- and I'm sure they had a couple months to build up their stock. I will guarantee you right now that if this thing starts back, that the Yemenis are going to knock the living daylights out of the uh, probably the UAE and the, and the Saudis oil infrastructure. And boy, that's the last thing the Biden people need right now. Yeah, I mean, this, the Saudis have been looting also the Yemeni oil and gas and uh, to the tone of hundreds of millions of dollars a day uh, being looted out. And that's part of why, you know, the, the, the empire is still hanging on because of all the looted oil of Yemen, Libya and Syria. Um, but we can see clearly that the Yemeni resistance is not going to take this uh, and allow another Eid to pass in Yemen where people cannot celebrate. Laith Maroof, as always, man, thank you so much for that time. Thank you for coming in and honoring us with your presence. I'm so happy to be here, guys. (laughs) We really appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon and Laith Maroof. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. President Biden had planned to nominate a conservative opponent of abortion rights to a lifetime federal judgeship in Kentucky, according to a newly released email, before the Supreme Court's decision came down. But the question is, 
if Biden said on the campaign trail that he was championing a woman's right to choose, then why is he cutting deals to put conservative justices on the court? Well, for insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political activist, an independent journalist, and a podcaster, Nico House. As always, Nico, welcome back. Thank you for having me back on, gentlemen. So Joe Biden apparently cut a deal with Mitch McConnell, senator from Kentucky, to put Chad Meredith, a former Kentucky State Solicitor General and staunch anti-abortion advocate, on the federal bench. And in return, Mitch McConnell agrees not to block Joe Biden's federal court nominations going forward. And so I call this uh, the the wimpy compromise. I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Nico House. This isn't surprising. I mean, I mean, it's the same Democratic Party where Hillary Clinton nominated an anti-abortion vice president, right? Jo- we know Joe Biden was anti-choice uh, forever, really, until this most recent election, just like the majority of the Democratic Party. That was including Barack Obama at one point, right? So... When we're looking at the Democratic Party, they embody weakness, inconsistency, and hypocrisy. And this is exactly all of th- all three of those things. Yeah, it's not surprising at all, unfortunately. And you got to wonder once again with the Democratic majority in every in every House, you know, House, the Senate, and the executive branch, like why are cutting deals before they even need to be made? In looking at this, Nico, it seems to me that the current leadership of the Democratic Party, there's no daylight between them and the Republicans on a number of issues. And I am starting to suspect that because, you know, Wilmer always said they didn't want to win the House and the Senate because they, they wanted the Republicans there so they could use them as a foil. I suspect now, come November, after they will, January, once the new Republicans are, take both houses, that that's when Joe Biden's going to be ready to pass legislation. He's going to be like, well, I'll just reach across the aisle and I can get something done with the Republicans and all of this Republican, you know how they do, all this Republican legislation that the Republicans wanted goes through and Joe Biden says, well, I, the American people wanted me to get, quote, something done. And when the Republicans are in, you get conservative legislation. And when the Democrats are in, you still get conservative legislation. That's the Bill Clinton approach. That's one of the things that aggravated the Republicans so much and got them to hate Bill Clinton was he co-opted a lot of their initiatives, changed the names on them, and got them passed as Democratic legislation. Yeah, I mean, and we we know whenever Joe Biden had bragged about, I, I can work with Republicans to get things done. Whenever a Democrat says that, it's never because they're getting stuff done for us. It's because they're getting they're working with Republicans to get things done for other Republicans. Like that's that's what they do. It's, they never actually do anything that benefits the American people, uh, or even something as simple as just upholding their um, just upholding their platform. Like they're not even doing that. And it's it's just it's frustrating. But I, what I will say though is that when you co- constantly see stories like this coming out, what we've been seeing is a lot of people have been catching on to the game of the Democratic Party. Like, they've been catching on to the game. And a lot of people are like, we're not, you, you showed us a vote last time, and we're still getting not the same results. Don't make that mistake. It's worse results. There are worse results than they had under Trump even. So, And following along this same logic, 
This is in Consortium News, Biden's nominee for Social Security Board. The advocacy group Social Security Works is urging the Senate to block Andrew Biggs' appointment by highlighting his role in the George W. Bush administration's failed attempt to privatize Social Security. They are highlighting his role. He's advocated for Social Security cuts throughout his career. Now he's been nominated to oversee Social Security. Nico. They're trying to put the fox in charge of the hen house, which, by the way, there are a lot of Democrats, and I believe Joe Biden is one of them, who has, in, as a senator, was talking about the privatization of Social Security, which is why uh, Branko Martitich wrote the book Joe Biden, Yesterday's Man. Yeah, and I would say that it's not like, once again, it goes back to the fact that he's not doing something that like benefits Republicans or excuse me. He's not doing something that is like, oh, man, this is what a Republican would do. It's, well, Joe Biden is a Republican. This is this is his agenda. This isn't like a Republican agenda or a Democrat. It's, this is the agenda. And they've been work. I mean, obviously, for those of you who don't know, Ronald Reagan obviously worked. He only, not only tried to privatize his security, he stole from it. Right. So there's that. But knowing where we're at right now. I wouldn't be surprised that Joe Biden is, tr is trying to nominate somebody that wants to privatize Social Security because he keeps using this excuse. Social Security is about to run out. Social Security is about to run out. We're getting in more and more debt. And so I believe that there's this idea that let's privatize Social Security while there is still something to steal from. I really believe that that's what's happening right now. Let me read this from the consortium news piece. While Biden vowed on the campaign trail to back an expansion of Social Security, he has previously supported cutting the program's benefits. Biden was vice president when former President Obama proposed a grand bargain with the GOP that would have entailed cuts to Social Security. This guy Biggs has dismissed the retirement crisis as a non-issue and as recently as 2020 blamed problems with the Social Security system on older Americans' game of chicken. While the seat on the bipartisan board is by tradition assigned to Republicans, Biden could have chosen a moderate candidate, but he did not do that. It's funny because this is the same guy that was literally collect, is collect well, before became, he became vice president, was collecting a pension just off of being a senator. Right. We have enough money for that, though. We always have enough money for senators and, and, and congressmen that ain't doing their job, but never enough for the people who've been working their butts off and putting money in Social Security this whole time. Like, it, it, how is there not money left? It's once again, there's not money left or there, there's the money for Social Security is running out because it's being allocated elsewhere. Not and not by their choice, not by those people's choice. Well, an economist will tell you there is really no problem with Social Security. Social Security is solvent and will be solvent. To your point, Nico, they have picked the lock to the lockbox and they are using it as a piggy bank. But the scare tactic that Social Security is running out, that is not true. Yes, and it's usually a campaign. It's just a campaign right. promise. Oh, we're going to protect Social Security. And that was something that, that Biden actually ran on. If y'all remember, Biden yep. actually ran on protecting Social Security. Well, here's what we see. Based on what Biden ran on and based on what the DNC supported his platform, they know and understand what the people want. He ran. He's ran on uh, a public option. He ran on. What did he say? Diplomacy is back. They know people want peace and prosperity. He ran on increasing Social Security. He ran on. And here's my point, Nico. 
It shows that they know what's right. They know what the Democratic people want. They know what to tell them to get their votes. So they already know what their constituents want. But once he got in, in uh, you're going to have to help me out. Once he got in office, I can't remember one of those promises that they kept. It would be fine if you said, well, we don't know what they want. We thought the people wanted austerity in, in World War Three. How would we know? They don't have that excuse. They offered people everyone. That makes it even more manipulative because they know what you want. They offer it to you, and then they give you the opposite. Nico. It's called lying, Garland. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, like well, it's, it's worse than lying because these are, the same, these are the people who understand, like, what the country needs, and they deliberately do the opposite after promising to fulfill those needs. Like, that's what makes it more nefarious, in my opinion. And the Republican Party, once again, they don't pretend to want to change the status quo. They're probably fine with it. A lot of their constituents, for the most part, have been uh, fine with the status quo. But it's something, in my opinion, once again, just more nefarious about, hey, we know exactly what you want. We know you are literally suffering right now. You can't even put food on the table, put gas in your gas tank. Uh, You know, people are, are terrified about their Social Security uh, potentially not being solvent, even though, as you said, the likelihood of it being solvent is high. And they still will make these promises. They have zero intention on keeping, but yet people put time, labor, their own personal money that they don't have into these Democratic Party members who have no intention whatsoever on fulfilling the province. And then, if anything, they have more intention, if anything, to do the opposite. Not just not fulfill the promise, but do the opposite of what they actually promised to get done. That's the that's the worst part about it. And that's what I think makes the Democratic Party for for people like myself and for you guys uh, who they cater to or not cater to, but at least, you know, pander to, um, you know, it makes it worse. That takes me to a story that I really am glad you're on to talk about. And that is it's a Mint Press story. Meet UEA PAC, the new Wall Street backed super PAC funding pro-Israel black Democrats. Uh, it's called the Urban Empowerment Action PAC. And it's endorsed five black Democrats with Israel lobby friendly positions. They're targeting primarily Rashida Tlaib in Michigan. And Bakari Sellers is part of this fraud. This is Israeli backed money coming into domestic campaigns, particularly in urban areas, using black candidates as fronts, in my opinion. Well, Go ahead. Okay. Now the Bakari Sellers thing makes a lot more sense, right? I mean, he's basically been, <laughs> I don't want to say anything that's uh, too offensive, but let's just say he's been switching for quite some time when it comes to pretending to be for black people and been doing things uh, for the white elite of the Democratic Party and, and just the political establishment in general. Um, I, we briefly discussed this pact before. Um, the fact that black people are being used um, to push this pro-Israeli agenda in my estimation, is antithetical to what it means to be a quote-unquote black revolutionary, black activist. It it undermines the reasoning for black activism, which is that you are literally going to engage uh, in uplifting a country uh, who actively oppresses an entire group of people based off of their religion and their ethnicity, which is supposed to be what if you're, you know, a black man in a Democratic Party, a black women Democratic Party, that you're supposedly fighting against here in the States to grant us more and more freedoms that we previously didn't have while you're simultaneously working to uphold an apartheid state. It's, it's, it's frustrating because it's like, oh, no, we got ours. Or I got mine. So, like, you're on your own. 
damn everybody who came before us that had to sacrifice and sacrifice just so Bakari Sellers pump behind actually had an opportunity to sell out. So it's 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 not surprising though. The Democratic I feel like uh, APAC wouldn't even be as prominent as it is without the Congressional Black Caucus allowing it to grow that big. And the reason I know we've talked about this in the past, but the reason that we added it to this particular set of stories today is because it's just another example of the fraud with Joe Biden backing Chad Meredith, with Joe Biden backing Andrew Biggs. This is just another example of the fraud. Nico House, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you having me Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Popular Resistance has a piece entitled No to NATO in Madrid and Right Rights. Not to defend or justify the Russian attack on Ukraine, however, NATO, the U.S., and the European Union's endless rhetoric of Ukraine joining their organizations is acknowledged, as is the often cited Russian Federation's red lines of its national security. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. She's a co-founder of Code Pink, Medea Benjamin. As always, Medea, welcome back. Nice to be on with you. So Anne Wright continues the continuing large-scale U.S. and NATO military war maneuvers, creation of U.S.-NATO bases, and deployment of missiles on the border with Russia are identified as provocative, aggressive actions by the U.S. and NATO. Ever more powerful weapons are being injected into the Ukrainian battlefields by NATO countries, which could inadvertently or purposefully quickly escalate to the disastrous use of nuclear weapons. Your thoughts, Medea Benjamin? Yes, it's so unfortunate that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has given NATO this new lease on life. And in its recent summit that happened in Madrid, where Anne Wright was attending, uh, there was a lot of um, uh, show of unity, the new uh, applications for membership coming from Finland and Sweden, uh, this sense that um, NATO was the savior in, um, in Ukraine and for all of Europe. And then on top of that, of course, it wasn't enough to... Um, be talking about the militarization uh, in Europe, but then they had to add in their strategic concept, well, let's not forget that China is the real adversary. So very unfortunate all the way around that NATO has um, found a way to give itself a facelift. Um, but for those of us in the know, it's the same old aggressive militaristic alliance. And, you know, I don't think that this NATO coming together, this kumbaya moment is going to last long because the other sad part of this, if you look at what's happening in Sri Lanka, you look what's starting to happen in other places around the world, this conflict between great powers, which NATO's expansion is clearly at the um, at the heart of it, is going to cause many millions of people as 
you know, I know you as I have a, you know, great love for the people of the global south and the poor people who have been oppressed for so long. A lot of people are going to suffer because of this military confrontation. Medea. Well, we're, yes, and we're already seeing that. The U.N. has put out a report of uh, increased millions that are now suffering from lack of food, the cost of uh, the grains and uh, that the World Food Program sends around the world, including to places like Afghanistan, have gone way up and their budgets have not gone way up. So it means they're able to send less food. Um, the repercussions are really astounding. And, um, of course, when it comes to uh, the price of gasoline, um, that's having a tremendous effect and, and actually giving the, uh, the, the powers uh, in the big um, uh, oil um, industry a justification for their outrageous prices. Uh, so, I, yes, Sri Lanka, you're seeing people were standing online for three days to fill up the uh, tanks in their motorcycles. Um, people who can't get uh, have to now uh, really make choices between paying their rent or, or, or eating decent food. Um, we're seeing the ripple effects globally, including right here in the U.S. And what's interesting in terms of what we're finding ourselves faced with now, as opposed to, say, for example, what went on in World War II, this is not a matter really of, of ideology and, and armies marching across terrain to capture space and, and impose ideology. This is the failing global hegemon waging war because of economic issues. In fact, this No to NATO summit, they say the statements uh, that NATO propaganda paints a false picture of NATO representing the so-called democratic countries versus an authoritarian world to legitimize its militaristic course. In reality, NATO is stepping up its confrontation with rival and emerging superpowers in pursuit of global hegemony, control over transportation routes, markets, and natural resources. So this is really the United States' response to losing its economic grasp on the world. Well, I think that's the uh, the confrontation that they are setting up with China. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly feel that uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative and China's incredible uh, success at becoming the number one trading partner uh, in countries all over the world, from Latin America to Africa to Europe, uh, is something that really the uh, the United States um, powers feel is the big threat. And so their effort is to paint Russia and China with the same brush and say these are authoritarian regimes that are threatening the free world, uh, while Biden makes himself ready to go to Saudi Arabia and uh, make nice with the uh, most repressive regime on earth. There's a story from TASS. Russia threatens retaliation for any threats from Sweden and Finland as NATO members. And when you look at that, the expansion of NATO has not made Europe safer, has not made the world safer. It's made, brought us all a step closer to nuclear annihilation. And rather than accept that, NATO now says, well, 
We want to double our size and surround Russia. Their thing is they want to surround Russia. Now NATO's actually coming out and saying, oh, yeah, we, we, we've we decided that China is part of the North Atlantic, which I don't know where the la- Atlantic borders China. I must have missed that. But now they're expanding their threats and putting us even in greater harm's way, Medea. Like I said to you before, Garland, if they can take Egypt out of Africa and put it in the Middle East, then they can put China in the North Atlantic. (laughs) Yes, well, they can also put Colombia and uh, South Korea and Japan in as well. Uh, They have these strategic partners now that span the globe. And... um, uh, we do have to be concerned that the corporate media does not do anything to help educate the American people about how dangerous NATO is and this setting up. I mean, it's bad enough we're in a proxy war with Russia right now, but setting us up for a war with China. Uh, if the American people knew, I would hope that they would try to do something about it. But instead, there's this idea of NATO good, uh, Russia, China, and um, their allies as all the, the enemies of humanity. And this black and white picture is unfortunately the daily gruel that the American public are fed. In fact, talk, if you would, about this United States targeting China, uh, because a lot of the economic problems that the United States is now having are a result of its own policies, as in deindustrialization of the United States, moving away from an economy that is industrial-based to a financialized economy. There are a number of things, a number of very conscious decisions that policymakers in the United States have made over time that are now coming to bite the United States in the butt. And all China has really done is taken advantage of the things that the United States put on its plate. Well, that's right. And that's something that Donald Trump and his campaign really uh, uh, emphasized and got a lot of support for, talking about the hollowed-out manufacturing base of this country Uh, And this was the result of a globalization process that benefited a small number of very big corporations, uh, but it made the U.S. more vulnerable and it made the the globe more vulnerable. And, you know, we're seeing that same kind of globalization that led um, countries around the world to be dependent on uh, whether it's grain or oil coming from Russia Uh, or Ukraine, to be in that same situation. Instead of having self-sustaining economies that are uh, based on locally grown goods, local energy supplies, um, we've made a mess of the world and uh, destroying nature in the process. Uh, Once again, let me remind everyone we're talking to Medea Benjamin. She's one of the founders of Code Pink. You can go to codepink.org to find out what they're up to. You know, um, Medea, from a positive perspective, and speaking of Code Pink, because that's what your organization has always done is is, is work to to push back against this stuff. In looking at Ann Wright's article, I see some positivity in that there are a lot of people out, that there were counter summits, that there's a peace summit. When we look at what happened in Los Angeles a couple months back when there was the summit of the of the so of some of the Americas. There was a counter people summit. There are some things going on and there are people working to push back. Your thoughts on that and what Code Pink is up to? 
Well, I'm glad you move us in that direction because I hate to just bum people out and not give them a chance to participate in this building process. And uh, Code Pink is part of a much larger grouping of uh, of organizations, both in the U.S. and around the world, that just put together a 24-hour peace wave at the same time of the NATO summit that showed people all over the globe, and it was literally 24 hours spanning the globe, uh, that are trying to do something to uh, stop this war in Ukraine, uh, to stop the expansion of militarism, and it was very inspiring to see all of that. We at Code Pink have formed a coalition called Peace in Ukraine, and you can look at the website called peaceinukraine.org, uh, where we give people materials like flyers they can uh, print out and go to their farmer's market or any public space and talk to people about this war. Um, we're pushing our Congress people to come out and say we need diplomacy, not escalation. Uh, and um, we are constantly holding educational seminars uh, so that people can learn more about these issues and feel more confident uh, to go out into their faith-based organization, their church, their mosque, wherever, uh, and talk to people. And that might be uh, the old-fashioned way of doing education, but that's what we have to do right now. How are you finding the level of uh, reception to what it is that you're articulating. I, one of the things I noticed about Anne Wright's piece is she she felt compelled to write the disclaimer not to defend or justify the Russian attack on Ukraine. Well, Russia didn't attack Ukraine. That's the first problem I have with her statement. But the fact that she feels compelled to make that disclaimer because the dominant Western narrative is is so dominant what kind of resistance or what kind of acceptance are you finding to the training that you all are having? Well, I disagree with you there, and I agree with Anne Wright, and I do think it's important that we are, uh, uh, as Code Pink, an anti-war group, and it doesn't matter who is engaged and uh, who has started what, we are against war, and we want to see an end to this war. Uh, and I think in the beginning it was hard to talk about it because people were just um, focused uh, solely on how do we support Ukraine, and they were uh, into the sending of more and more weapons. I think now that people understand um, that it's a it, it's a, uh, uh, a war that is um, potentially going to go on and on and on uh, and create havoc around the world, uh, including at the gas pump when they want to fill up their tanks, uh, and at the grocery store, that there's much more openness to to uh, our message that we have to get our governments to be pushing for sitting down at the uh, table and talking. And the fact that, uh, uh, that, that Biden doesn't talk to Putin and that uh, our Anthony Blinken doesn't talk to Lavrov, I mean, we want them to be talking mm -hmm. and we want them to find solutions. And I think people are more and more open to that message. Madea Benjamin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Okay, nice to be on with you. Bye-bye. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, Iran, Russia, and China to Carry Out Military Drills in Venezuela. They are preparing to carry out a series of trilateral military exercises in Latin America in a show of force against the U.S., For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American human rights, labor rights lawyer and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, the Huffington Post and Telesur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. His latest book is entitled Cancel This Book, The Progressive Case Against Cancel Culture. Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So it's reported that Venezuela is scheduled to host military exercises in mid-August and Iran, Russia and China, along with 10 other nations, intend to send their armed forces to the Western Hemisphere to participate in these exercises. Dan, and they state very clearly they want to flex a little bit and it's a show of force against the U.S. Your thoughts, Dan Kovalik. Yeah, this is a pretty amazing development. It's not one that uh, one could have anticipated even a few years ago. It really does show, I think, how the United States is waning in terms of power and influence, even in in its own hemisphere, and how the East uh, really is rising in influence. Um, And I think part of this is to show the United States, frankly, how it feels to be uh, the ones that are encroached upon and threatened. And and, uh, this has kind of given the U.S. a little taste of its own medicine. There's another interesting story that Venezuela now exhibits Iranian drones for its first time during Independence Day uh, military parade. And basically, it seems to me that South America, that Latin America is basically making a statement. The Monroe Doctrine is dead. The Monroe Doctrine that says we are not allowed to build military alliances with anyone out unless, of course, it is okayed by the U.S. empire. They are saying as the people from country to country um, take over their governments and push back against the U.S. empire, we're not going to follow your rules anymore. It's a sign of the, of the, of the multipolar world. Your thoughts? No, I think that's exactly what it is. Uh, the Monroe Doctrine has existed since 1823, and as you said, uh, it states that the U.S. will not allow uh, foreign uh, countries outside the hemisphere to have influence uh, – Within the region, and this is clearly saying uh, just the opposite, that countries can align um, with others like Iran, like Russia, like China, and that the U.S. has nothing to say about it. So it's actually quite stunning, and you're seeing not only Venezuela do this, you're seeing Nicaragua do this, Honduras has announced it's going to work with China. Argentina has uh, stated it's going to work with China. So it's pretty amazing. In fact, to your point, uh, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, which is an ally of Venezuela, renewed a military pact with Russia that authorizes Russian troops, planes and ships to patrol the borders of Nicaragua. So I asked this question and I've asked this to you a number of times because I, I think this question needs to continually be asked, what does the failing imperial hegemon do now because we know that they don't go quietly into the night? Well, it's a good question. 
Uh, I don't know what it can do. I mean, I, I, as you say, I, I don't think they're just going to give up. Um, at the same time, there are so many problems that this country is facing internally with inflation, with poverty, uh, with continuing uh, crumbling infrastructure despite the so-called Build Back Better program. Um, I think the U.S. is running out of options. Um, it has made a pretense to try to control the world, and it can't even control its own country, it cannot bring prosperity to its own people. And it's starting to catch up with uh, the government, which now is going to have to struggle. The current uh, administration, the Democrats, are going to have to struggle even to be uh, reelected uh, in the midterms and probably won't be. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, uh, at the same time, while I say that, you, you see the U.S. starting to double down in places like Somalia, sending troops there, sending troops to Ethiopia, sending troops even back into Iraq. So obviously the U.S. empire has not ended, but I think we may be seeing the last gasps of it. And, you know, speaking of that, and you, you mentioned the, the, the upcoming midterms in November, we see Boris Johnson now. We see casualties from the Russia sanction and the Ukraine and the rush to this Ukraine vent, neocon venture. Uh, I believe the Bulgarian government has fallen. I think the Latvian government has fallen or Slovakia. I think it's Latvia. The now Bojo is done. And certainly I know Olaf Schultz and some of the other people are looking over their shoulders. So the other part of it is the U.S. allies or vassals, whatever you want to call them, are starting to feel the pain. And particularly from the lack of things that the global south has a lot of, like oil and gas and commodities. Yes. Well, and again, that, what's, that's what makes the situation quite dangerous is that you have countries that are ever more desperate – uh, whose economies are failing, so they don't have the economic means to dig themselves out of this hole. And so one fears they're going to look for military means. Of course, that's what the United States does all the time. They try to solve every problem with a war, and they thought they could solve some problems with this war, this proxy war with Russia, and it's obviously made things even worse. So again, uh, what is the plan B here? I'm not sure, but uh, I honestly am not excited to find out because I don't think it's going to be good. You know, this story, uh, the, in fact, the two stories that we're talking about, this and the Iranian drone story, when you add that to what was going on while Joe Biden was terribly hosting the summit for some of the Americas, as Maduro was going around the world on this world tour, the optics of him going to Iran, the optics of him, I think he went to Russia while Joe Biden was doing his thing. You follow that with this, Venezuela ho hosting military exercises to demonstrate or challenge a show of force against the United States. This really shows that Maduro on the world stage is a much larger presence and force to be reckoned with than a whole lot of people ever really anticipated. Yeah, well, again, the U.S. seems to now be acknowledging that by the fact that they're sending missions 
to Venezuela uh, to beg for oil. I mean, oh, but, I oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Well, let, let me interrupt you and say, but Juan Guaido is still the president of Venezuela. Go, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. And of course, that looks pretty funny when they're going to visit Maduro, which, you know, obviously in practice is recognizing him as the leader. So um, I think that Venezuela has shown that it's more durable than the U.S. thought. They're expected to have 15 to 20 percent economic growth this year uh, when the U.S., did not invite them to this summit and didn't invite Nicaragua or Cuba, other countries, uh, namely and most importantly Mexico, uh, refused to go in solidarity with them. And again, I think the U.S. is becoming very surprised by all this, you know, that their plans at dominating these countries uh, are failing. And uh, I think Venezuela has a lot to crow about right now. And if you look at it, you know, yes, the U.S. is unhappy and normally would be ready to react violently in, in Latin America. However, the chessboard's too big. Even now, as we talk about country after country falling away from the, the U.S. empire, I was reading, I believe yesterday, Lula da Silva in uh, has opened up, I believe, a 14 or 15 point lead over Jair Bolsonaro, which I believe it is the eighth largest, either the fifth or the eighth largest and and also most populous country in the world. So the U.S. is not moving in. You know, it's just getting too big. They're being overwhelmed by the pushback against the neoliberal order. And they lost Colombia. Yeah. Dan. Yeah, well, this is what happens when empires overstretch themselves. You can't fight a multi-front war. Um I guess the U.S. thought it could for a time, and it did, though it lost all those wars, by the way, right? And we, we saw the U.S. leave Afghanistan in a very unseemly way with its tail between its legs uh, last year. And uh, we're seeing that the U.S. cannot fight all these wars at the same time and succeed. And now, now it's beginning to lose everything. Um, and again, that is how empires fall. And the real, I guess, frightening or, or unfortunate reality in all of this is that it's, for the most part, if not all part, at the U.S.'s own doing, that that this is just miscalculation, this is hubris, this is arrogance, this is all of the things that lead one to have misperceptions of, of reality, visions of grandeur. Because you now got Pompeo out there talking about basically the United States is on a mission from God and that it has to deal with China because, you know, we're we're anointed by the heavenly powers to control the world. I mean, that's just delusional. But that's what leads so-called superpowers to the dust heaps of history. Yes. As they say, pride goeth before the fall, right? And, pride uh, goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. <laughs> Indeed. Napoleon found that out and uh, the Romans found that out and Hitler found that out and the U.S. is finding it out, you know. And again, the, the emperor has no clothes. When you look at what's even happening domestically in this country, it's very clear um, that you have a country in complete disarray, really that's a failed state, and therefore the pretense that it's going to somehow bring stability to the world, 
I think that's all falling away. I think the world is now waking up to see, wow, these guys can't even manage themselves. They're not going to be able to manage us. Yeah. with uh, I mean, it's to a point now people are afraid to go out of their house. You go to a major event and there's, uh, you know, mad shooters firing in every direction. And I mean, the, the country is in chaos and there's you don't have the basic features of safety in your life. We've got about 30 seconds. No, that's absolutely right. All of us are feeling that uh, our streets are not safe. Um, we're not safe from disease. Uh, the, the U.S. completely mismanaged the COVID pandemic. Um, again, inflation is through the roof. I just saw a statistic like something like the literacy, r- literacy rate is something like uh, 56% or something in terms of people being, uh, you know, functionally literate. This is a third world country. This country has been allowed to go to seed and uh, we're seeing the results. It's a third world country with very nice buildings. That's yes, well, a couple. They're falling <laughs> apart, but we got some. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time, Dan. Really, really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. We're out.